withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. We thank you, God, for your eternal word. We thank you that you have a word to speak to each and every one of us today, and we pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts ready to obey through the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I think a lot of Christians today are asking this question, how can we respond to a culture that seems increasingly disinterested or even hostile to our faith? How are we to respond to that as Christians today? And our gospel passage can help us in that regard to answer the question, what is our responsibility as Christians in this kind of culture? Again, a culture that's increasingly disinterested, and maybe even hostile. I want to remind you of the context of Matthew chapter 5. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we ended last week, well, the sermon begins with the the Beatitudes, and that's where we ended with the Beatitudes. And at the end of the Beatitudes, the very last Beatitude is one that Jesus talks about with regard to persecution. He says this in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is trying to give his disciples a long-term perspective, an eternal perspective, He says, even though you might suffer in this life for the cause of the kingdom, in the next life you'll have a great reward. Great will be your reward in heaven. But then he goes on and says, you are to be salt and you are to be light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. In other words, what Jesus is teaching us is, even though people will revile you, Even though people may lie and persecute you, lie about you and persecute you, you're not to withdraw from the world. You're not to be afraid of the world. You're to engage the world. Be who you are as disciples in the kingdom of God. You are salt and you are light. I think a lot of us, when we think about our relationship with this culture, we tend to fall into a kind of a conflict model. We think about the culture war. Uh, in the 1950s, there was a professor at Yale University who wrote this famous book, H. Richard Niebuhr, about Christ and culture, and he talked about Christ against culture, that in different times in the history of the church, this is the posture that Christians have taken towards the culture, Christ against culture. And the idea is that the culture has become so corrupt and that the gap between Christians and non-Christians is so great, there's such a chasm there that really really we can do nothing about it. There's no hope for common ground. And so we just sort of throw our hands up and huddle together in in a holy huddle. Now, there's some truth in this Christ against culture model. God does call Christians to come out of the world to be separate from the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.17, come out from among them, be separate from them. But the call to be separate is not really a call to be cloistered. 
It's a call to be holy, to be set apart. As the saying goes, to be in the world, but not of the world. Somebody has said that a Christian needs two conversions, a conversion out of the world and then a conversion back into the world. We need our minds renewed. We we don't want to be conformed to the thinking of this world, but we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12 tells us. And then we engage in the world with a a new mind and and a heart made new by the Spirit of God as a witness for him. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, Get into the world, even when they lie about you, ridicule and persecute you. Don't give up. Don't be complacent. This is who you are, salt and light. So let's think about those two images this morning, salt and light. Salt, let's start, about, start thinking about salt and the benefits of salt. Well, it's easy for us to take for granted the benefits of salt because salt is readily available. We all have salt shakers on our table. But in the ancient world, salt was very valuable. In fact, the expression, he's worth his salt, do you know where that comes from? Possibly it comes from a time when Romans paid their soldiers in salt. So to say somebody was worth their salt means that he is earning his his, uh, salary. So when we think about salt, it's something that's valuable, certainly valuable in the ancient world. And it benefits us by, of course, adding seasoning and flavor to food. That's one uh, clear benefit. A couple of uh, months ago, I was watching one of those cooking contest shows. And they featured two brothers who had opened up this restaurant where they did really exquisite avant-garde kind of food. In fact, they had won the Michelin star. And so an older chef was there to sort of judge their food. And he was going out and talking to the patrons and asking them, what did you think about these dishes? And the customers were saying, well, this is really creative. We've never seen anything like this. The the presentation is beautiful, but it's kind of bland. (laughs) And so the chef went back to the kitchen and berated these young chefs and said, use salt, use seasoning. Even at a Michelin star restaurant, you have to use salt. Flavor the food. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is who you are in the world. You are to give flavor to the world with what is true and good and beautiful. Christians should reflect in the way that we engage with culture and in the things that we produce and the gifts that we have what is true and good and beautiful. There's a wife of a pastor in our uh, Anglican network named Marissa Burt. And she is the wife of um, Aaron who is the rector of a church in uh, Seattle. But Marissa writes uh, fiction for middle school children. And she's published a couple of stories with Harper Collins. Um, and her books are called Story Bound and Stories End. But on her website, she openly uh, talks about her Christian faith. And she says this The gospel is reality for me, and my relationship with Christ profoundly shapes my imagination. So here's somebody engaging the culture with a mind that's been shaped with the gospel of Jesus Christ, writing these stories that reflect redemptive themes of the gospel, seeds of the gospel through her stories. And that's what we need. We need more of that kind of engagement between Christians and non-Christians so that people will begin to get the hints of the gospel and transcendence in culture today. And, of course, we need to support people 
in vocations like that. Artists, musicians, writers, poets. So salt flavors the culture. Jesus calls us salt. And then salt also preserves, doesn't it? That was important in Jesus' day, of course. Not as important in our day when we have refrigeration. But salt was used to preserve. They rub it on meat and fish to preserve the meat from spoiling. It was essential in that regard. And Jesus is saying, as my disciples, you are to be people who preserve what is good and what is right in culture. Many of us look at the decay of a lot of biblical values today, fundamental values, values that are rooted in the Judeo-Christian ethic, values that really made Western culture great. And we look at where our world is heading and we, and, and we wring our hands, and rightly so, we're worried about the decay of values, the decay of the family, the decay of marriage, which is, by the way, related to the decay of sexual boundaries and sexual ethics. All this is related. Things are decaying. The decay of honesty and integrity in leadership. The decay of respect and decency towards people who you don't agree with. The decay of civility. But as Christians, what are we to do about it? Well, it starts with us. It starts with us being salt. It starts with us living out those values that we know God requires of us and asks us In our family life, in our workplace, we should be people of integrity. We should be people of purity. We should be preserving these values, not so much railing against the culture, but living them out in our life. That's how we can be preservers of what's right and what's good. So we're called to be salty Christians. (laughs) And that means we, we have to not be influenced by the world so much as influence the world around us. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored, Jesus asked. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. I think there's kind of two dangers here that we, can, we, can, we, we face as Christians. One is sort of the withdrawal. We, we withdraw from the world. We, we, we began to kind of huddle up again together in our community. And we get very comfortable with one another and we don't engage with people outside of our context. For salt to flavor, it has to make contact with the meat. That's one thing that, that can happen. And the other thing that can happen on the other opposite perspective is, or the opposite spectrum is that we can be so influenced by the culture that we lose our saltiness and we become no different than the people in the world. We're called to be different. We're called to be salt. To flavor and to preserve And then let's think about this other image that Jesus uses here. Again, he's teaching us who we are to be in the world. He says, light, you are the light of the world. What does light do? Light reveals, light gives direction, light guides, light dispels the darkness. And Jesus says, this is your role in the world. You are to be light. Now, you might remember that on another occasion, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. And now he's calling us the light of the world. Which is it? Well, he is the primary light. We are the light of the world only as we follow him, only as we become like him. That's what he goes on to say in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, our relationship with Christ is like the moon to the sun. The moon does not produce its own light. 
the moon reflects the burning light of the sun. We are the moon. He is the sun. Our light comes from Him. There's no room for pride or triumphalism in the Christian life. We are just little lights hinting at the greater light of Jesus Christ. How do we shine with the brightness of Jesus Christ? I think that's what we really need as a church, as Christians. We need to be people who shine with the brightness of Jesus. We need to be so full of Christ that that there's something even different sometimes in our countenance because we're close to Christ. We practice the presence of Christ in prayer, in worship, as we gather together as a congregation. But in our own individual life, we make it a priority to stay close to the light of the world so that we can shine with His brightness. You know, think about Moses on, on Mount Sinai. When he came down from the mountain, what does it say? Exodus thirty four twenty nine says, His face shone because he had been with God. And, and we need to be people who shine with the, count, with the, with the, the, the glory of God because we've spent time in His presence and, and, and we've cultivated a deep and abiding relationship with Him. As we follow Jesus, we shine the light of Christ. Of course, there'll be times when we don't shine so brightly, <laughs> when the shine rubs off. We, we come back into the presence of God and we ask for His cleansing forgiveness and we ask to be refilled again with his spirit so we can be who he calls us to be what a high calling christians have to be the light of the world what an important role jesus says we have to play we are to give guidance we are to give direction we are to dispel the darkness and we all have a role to play it's a high calling that we play in our daily lives chuck colson in his book about the church, which I think is just called The Body, writes about his friend Richard Halverson, Dick Halverson, who was chaplain of the United States Senate. But before he was the chaplain to the United States Senate, he was pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. One day, Halverson was flying into Washington, and as he regularly did, he looked out the window to locate his church there in Washington, D.C. But the church was shrouded in shadows. The sun was setting. The shadows were such that the church was shrouded in darkness, so he couldn't find the church. And so he just kind of laid back in his seat and took in the skyline, and he began to see the, the skyline of the capital city. And he saw the capital building, the glow of the capital dome, and the lights of the Labor Department, and the White House and then he began to just mentally tick off uh, names of members of his congregation that he knew were working in those very buildings. And then it hit him suddenly, that's where Fourth Presbyterian Church is. The church of Jesus is spread throughout Washington in the homes, in the neighborhoods, in schools, in offices, thousands of lamps in the midst of darkness. You are the light of the world. And that's a reminder, a timely reminder for us as we look forward to getting into our church building. We're so thankful that we're going to have a place set apart for worship. We're thankful that we have a place, a base from which to do mission. But the church is is not the building. We are the church. We are the light of the world, Jesus says. Don't hide your light under a basket. 
And then let's just think here in conclusion about the motivation for this, the reason for this. The reason that we're called to be light and salt in the world is this. At the very end of verse 16, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's not to make ourselves look good. It's not to make Church of the Resurrection look good. We live this way to make God look good. Good works are a witness to God. Good works don't save us. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but good works are a witness. Good works can lead people to give glory to God. People need to hear the good news and they need to see the good works. The thing... Both of these things go hand in hand as we live our lives under the rule of God. Many people today, of course, they don't know God. They don't have an idea of the glory of God like many of us in this room have. They haven't experienced the goodness of God. They haven't tasted the goodness of God and the presence of God. And some people are distant from God and hostile even to the things of God. And some people will revile and hurl insults and lie about us, and some people even persecute Christians. But Jesus says to us, don't be afraid, don't shrink back, don't become complacent, be salt and light, and some will see your good works, and they will give glory to your Father in heaven. May we be zealous for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reminding us of who we are to be in the world, light and salt. Help each of us to think about ways that we can do that and encourage us as we, as we have pursued your call in our life in this way. Help us to engage in good works and and to live our life with integrity and honesty, consciously aware that people are taking notice of how we live. Help us as a church, Lord, to understand that our call is not just to gather together, but to go forth into the world, sharing your light. And help us, Lord Jesus, to stay close to you. You're the light of the world. Help us to stay close to you so that something of your brightness is reflected in us. For the sake of your glory. Amen.